In 2015, uh, DreamWorks put out a movie called Home. It wasn't the most popular animated movie in their history, but um, one that I definitely took my kids to go see. I think it was actually my daughter's first like full movie to sit through. And the movie's about this alien race called the Booves, and they uh, come and drive out the humans and take over Earth, even though they're actually a bit kind of fearful and complacent, kind of a collection of aliens. But there's this one Boove named O, uh, and he's voiced by Jim Parsons of The Big Bang Theory. He's clumsy and kind of free-thinking, doesn't quite fit in with the rest of his alien race. And at some point, he befriends this young human girl, uh, voiced by Rihanna, named Tip. And uh, for various I'm not going to go into the whole plot line of the movie, but for various reasons, <laughs> they become friends and ended up having to sort of travel together uh, to, to, for their, both of their goals. And uh, as their friends and as they're traveling, uh, they're in the car, and Rihanna's character puts on some music. She's like, let's put on some music to listen to. And the boo alien's like, well, this isn't music. We don't really do music. This is just noise. And he's all grumpy at first. And then, like, one of his little tentacles starts tapping. And then his middle section starts moving. And he's, like, freaking out. He doesn't understand why he keeps kind of dancing along. And then eventually, like, he starts changing colors because of the music. And, he, and then at first he's like, how long is this going to be till it kills me? And then he starts realizing that dancing to music is actually fun. And he starts enjoying it. And then by the end of the movie, all the aliens are dancing and everything else. But um, it's this point of the movie of how music affects this alien and, and causes them to dance. And um, it's, it's a great, it's a cute little movie. And uh, it struck me, reading the psalm that we're reading, in the context that I'll unpack in a second, that, like, what, what if this happened this morning? Like... I know we, we simply have an acoustic on stage. We don't have the full band. We're not always playing this like super upbeat music. But at the same time, like what, what if on the back end of the set we just turn into a church full of dancers? Right? Like that would be unexpected <laughs> given some of our history, but what if? Because it can happen. Because this text, what we're going to unpack in a second, like is a story of like, People, people coming to dance. I know it's not right off the page, but people, people unashamedly dancing. Because most scholars actually put this psalm in a very specific context. Now, it's impossible to prove, but most scholars in church history and actually Jewish history all put the psalm in a very specific spot. And that's um, really in the context of a story that happens in 2 Samuel 6. Now, Israel uh, had, uh, when they were in the desert, when they met God at Sinai, God gave them a bunch of instructions about a tabernacle, a tent that they were supposed to build uh, that was kind of movable, that was always a symbol in some ways of God's presence. It was sort of like God's little house in, with them. And then inside this was a very special place, this, this holy of holies place, this very set-apart place. And inside there, there was a box that they were supposed to build called the, ta- uh, uh, um, not the tabernacle, called the Ark of the Covenant. It's gold. If you've watched Indiana Jones, you have a reasonable idea of what it looks like. Um, and it was, yeah, this box with, with angels on top with their wings over it. And this box was meant to sort of almost represent sort of like the, the throne, the seat that where, where God would sit amongst his people, the place where he would be very, very present, almost like extra present with this box. And at some point in Israel's history, that box gets taken away. 
so uh, they get conquered, they get kind of complacent on a bunch of things, and the box gets taken uh, by a bunch of Philistines, other groups around them. And uh, they're missing the, this box for a number of years uh, for all sorts of reasons. And eventually, uh, with David and company, they decide to like get the box back. And, and while it was with the Philistines, it caused like, their god statue to fall over. All kind of it's crazy stories. But uh, ultimately, um, they, they get the ark back. They get God's box back. And when they first decide to kind of move it back, to the tabernacle and put it in Jerusalem, there's, there's a bit of a unique story. And they put it on a cart. Now, why would you put a giant, heavy metal box on a cart? Because, yeah, because that's very convenient, right? <laughs> if anybody's moved stuff without, heavy stuff without wheelbarrows, it is hard. And so they realize, like, it's really convenient. Let's just put this thing on a cart and we'll, we'll haul it off to Jerusalem. Now, the difficulty is that we, like, have a whole book of the Old Testament that's like, here's how to do everything with this box. We need Levites to move it only. They have to use these acacia poles. They have to put it through hoops. There's all these instructions on how to properly move this box. And the Israelites are like, let's just throw it on a cart and take it to town. And it doesn't go well. People die. It's, it's just part of a crazy story. And eventually, David, I think, freaks out a little bit. And it's like, let's... Let's not take the box to town yet, because this has not gone well so far. And they leave it at this Obed guy's house, and they leave it there for a while. He gets all sorts of blessings from this box just being in his house, and eventually David's like, okay, like, it seems like things are okay. Obed's getting his blessing, and they decide to bring the box back to Jerusalem, to God's presence, God's thing that um, he, they've, he's given the people as a reminder of who they are. And so here's now how they're going to bring the box to town. Second uh, Samuel 6. It was told, um, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So for whatever reason, the box just kind of hanging in this guy's garage has totally blessed him. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, so at some point it seems like they probably got the Levites involved, got the poles, and did it correctly. Those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, and with the sound of the horn. And so you got to imagine, they're carrying this box, and at some point they're just walking, and they're like, one. got to imagine they're actually probably take, trying to take large steps at this point, too. Three, four, five, six. Okay, let's stop. And I can't imagine the sacrifice of a bull or a, a large animal is going to be a quick, immediate process. There's something convenient about the things that David and company are doing, but they're stopping and their sacrifice. And part of sacrificing is, is an act of worship for them. And so they stop, and they kill the animals that they need. And, and so forever many kilometers, and if you even Google how many kilometers this is, there's probably about 100 different answers. So I'm not going to guess exactly how far this was. But um, they walk, and they take their steps, mostly because we don't know exactly what, where this town is. But they take their steps, they stop, sacrifice. Take their steps, stop, sacrifice. Once again, like what God, it's, 
is doing with his people. It's not convenient. Anytime that it seems like sometimes it comes to worshiping God, it's not always about convenience. It's not about how quickly we can get things done. Uh, But they come, and they worship, and they do this act. And at some point, you'd be like, oh, it feels so bloody. It feels so solemn. It feels all these kind of things. But the response of the people is not solemnness. We find David just start dancing. He's wearing his linen ephod, which is like a Hebrew way to say like tidy whites. He's like basically in his underwear dancing around, like in joy, in, in celebration. And most would say David's song here, the song that we have here, is in connection to this event. Like this is possibly what they were singing on the way. So now that we have a little bit of that backdrop. And just so you know, like David does all this dancing, and then one of his wives, who doesn't really like him at all, is like, hey, like that, that was uncouth for you to be dancing in front of everybody. He's like, uh, guess what? I am going to get even more than this. Like, I'm going to get more undignified than this. It's great. This is a wonderful David story. So, Psalm 24. Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in the holy place? Now he's opening, it's, this song is really bit broken down into four stanzas. It's stanza one. And it feels very sort of what we call doxological. It's very much sort of this praise sentence, this praise sentences that, that, that the songwriter is putting together. The earth, I have like a hair, like a long hair. Um, the earth is the Lord's, and it's full, the fullness of the earth. So what does that leave out? I mean, space, sure, but like, as we look around, what does that leave out? If the earth is the Lord's, like, are we currently on earth? Great, right? All the land we stand on, the, the fullness of the, of the earth. So even all the things that the earth produces. So the doors, the fabric that we sit on, the, the metal, all of it. It's all the Lord's right away, right? And, and in a time when various gods had their different locations and different places that, that, that they were really confined to, I think David's making a pretty significant statement to say, you know what? All of it. All of it's Yahweh's. It's not like Israel is only the thing that's Yahweh's, this land that we're in. All of it is his. So, I mean, the same is true for us. Like, if you own a home, do you really own the home? And if you have a car, do you really own the car? Like, at some point, if we, we could trace, like, our, even our skills and our abilities and the places that we were born and the money that we've had and the things that we've accomplished and stuff like that, like, there's a way to trace all of those things back to go, okay, like, I didn't choose where I was born. I could have been born in a place where I couldn't get a house and a car. But I, but I was born in a place where I could. And I was born into a family that raised me a certain way. And I was given a certain set of skills that I can use in certain ways. And so I, and all those things I didn't choose. And so, once again, it's very easy to eventually go, okay, none of the things in your life ultimately are truly yours because they're all lords. And then we get that call back to creation. We founded it upon the seas, established it upon the river. So um, it's very much language of Genesis 1. He, he drew the earth from the seas. That's, that's where he put it. And, and so, which is ancient cosmology. We know that this land's not sitting upon a bunch of water, but um, the, the sort of picture of them drawing it upon the seas. And then the second line, upon the rivers, it's really this idea of upon currents 
upon moving waters. Now, this is unique. Uh, this would sort of describe the ancient Israelite pre-scientific cosmology, uh, this, this way that they saw the world. And, and as you read the Old Testament, you see this kind of all over the place. This idea that um, this concept of chaos, chaos in life, chaos in what is chaos is connected to evil, chaos and fear, and the unknown, all of it. And it often gets wrapped in this analogy around water. That's why it's called the abyss or the deep often, even into the New Testament. This idea that, that, that the, the water is both probably the Mediterranean for them, but even the large seas, um, the, the, whether the Sea of Reeds or um, places like Galilee, had this sort of fearful, this is the place where chaos happens. And every single time the disciples get on a boat, guess what? It's the place where chaos happens. And so there was just this idea. And um, we see, um, even in the very presence of God, like, you go to Revelation. What is, the, what is the sea like in Revelation in front of God? Remember, remember the picture? The sea is like what? It's like glass. It's like not chaotic. It's not moving. It is still. And so, even going back to the Genesis story, it's like, in the creation story, we see the Holy Spirit hovering over sort of the abyss, the, 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 the unformed and, and, and unruly pre-creationness of the earth. And then God for six days draws it out, brings order, creates day and night, creates sun and moon, creates earth and land, or land and sea, does all of these things and brings order, rules over the chaos that for many would have been so fearful. Yahweh, he's the one. He's the one who owns it all, and he's the one who is able to bring order to even the chaotic thing, to conquer what would be metaphoric for evil and wicked things in the world. That is the God. So that's why the psalmist will ask the question, who can go to that hill? Like, if, if this God is able to create everything we know, and he owns it all, and he can subdue even the most wicked things, who, who can go to his hill? Now, most think this is Jerusalem. This is where David's probably bought a threshing floor at this point in time, and Tabernacle's going to sit on that threshing floor. Who can go to the holy place? It's a serious question. Who? To a God who owns the universe. What's standing? Who is able to stand in that place? Who dares to go to him? And it's a bit of a rhetorical question. Now, once again, most of us, I think, are kind of ingrained and kind of in evangelicalism, most of us would go, no one. But if you're an ancient Jew, that's not true. Who can go to the holy place? The high priest, right? There is an actual answer to this question. The high priest can go. He's the only one that's allowed to go. Like, they have a whole book with instructions on how the high priest is allowed to go into the tabernacle. It's the center point of the whole book. One, year, one day a year, go into the holy place. He has to do all these things to consecrate himself. They would even tie a rope to him just in case he wasn't actually worthy to go into the place. And he could go into the holy of holies, do his thing, forgiveness of Israel once a year, day of atonement, and come out. That, that is who, who, who. Like, literally would be the, the straight-up answer for an Israelite going, yeah, the high priest can do that. So, whoever it is, Shlomo this year, he's allowed to go into the space. He's the high priest right now. So most of the crowd answering that question would also go, not me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a Levite. I'm not the high priest. I'm not clean. All, all these things. There's, there's no way I should go into the house of the Lord. David, you're a wonderful king. There's no way you should go into the house of the Lord. None of, none of us should go to God's holy mountain. 
And that's the kind of thing that... Um, I mean, the kind of God that we're introduced to, the first two verses, is holy, separate. And, and we even see this throughout other parts of the Old Testament. So you deal with Sinai. Who can go to the mountain of God in Sinai? Moses. He's allowed to bring a few people with him. But the rest of the Israelites are like, even, even God's like, don't let him really even touch the mountain. It's not going to be good. So there, there was always at least a few characters in the story who were allowed to. But for the mass of people, there's no way they're allowed to. No one. So we should respond with, none of us can. And then David says it. He who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord of righteousness, from the God of his salvation. So it's a bit of a shift. He went from heavily doxological to go, and, and to leave with a bit of a rhetorical question to suddenly go, no, those who have a clean hands and a pure heart, they, they, that person could go. And we get a bit of an identification here. Uh, the clean hands um, would have really connected to sort of the outward actions of life. The, the things that we actually do uh, with our hands, with our bodies. Um, that, so it's those whose actions have been clean. Those who outwardly live in line with what God actually expects of them. Or have done the work to cleanse themselves. Because once again, we, the book of Leviticus includes hundreds of pages. Not hundreds. Pages and pages of how to go through the cleaning process. So you, here's how to have clean hands. Here's, here's how to do that. And then up here, heart. In the Hebrew thought, the, the heart stands for uh, multiple things. We think of heart as just emotions, mostly in, in modern America. But the heart being um, not just emotions, but what we think, what we desire, sort of our internal, the architecture of our internal being, what we're thinking about, what we feel, what we want, all of those things being really connected to the heart in Jewish thought. And so this is about our inner being, not just our hands, not just what we've done. So if we haven't murdered, we haven't done certain things, great, we're clean of those things. But even our internal being, how we think about things, what our emotions are like, what we actually desire, is our inner being pure. And lastly, we get a couplet that's actually about speech. Um, I don't love how the ESV handled this. Um, the, the literal reading in the text is, who has not raised his throat vainly and has not sworn falsely. This double um, language around swearing and, and probably speaking related to the throat. So our actions, our internal desires, and lastly, like even, even the words that come out of our mouths, which... All of the, the Bible, both the old and new, will speak a lot about the words that we use, the words that come out of our mouth. So the one who tells the truth, who speaks truly, who does not use the Lord's name in vain, who, who do all those sort of things, who, who speak only what is right and true, that's the picture. Now, some of us may be living in tension right now, and I hope, I hope we are. I'm sure many of the Israelites and many of us up to this point in the psalm would also still be sitting there going, yeah, that's still not me. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, there might be moments where maybe I feel like my life's a little bit cleaner than others. Or my heart feels a little more pure than others. But most days, I don't know if I'd describe myself as the one with the clean hands and the pure heart who only speaks what is true and what is right, who never speaks wrongly. We're not batting a thousand, to use sports metaphors. We're not, we're not hitting it perfectly. None of us are. We can own that. 
it's a good thing. That's part of what church is here for, is to come and go, I'm not batting a thousand on anything. It's great. So, so we sit there. And then he says this in verse 6. He says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Now, once again, there's, there's really nuance in the language. And I said, I said this when we started Psalms. There's going to be a lot of these moments because the language is so poetic. And even if you read through, if you have like footnote stuff and stuff like that, there'll be all sorts of like little letters pointing to something else because there's phrases, particularly in the Psalms, that are just harder to translate and hard to make sense of and hard to put together because they're, they're sort of all kind of um, uniquely put together. And once again, it says, uh, so very literally, this is the people inquiring of him, the seekers of his face, Jacob, which is uh, another word for the people of Israel. They, they go back and forth, sometimes calling themselves Jacob and sometimes calling themselves Israel. And I think, once again, this nuanced translation for the psalmist. So who can possibly do this? Who can possibly go up to the mountain? Well, only the ones with a clean hand, pure heart. And most of them saying, well, that's still not us. And then the psalmist goes, well, no, but it is you. It's the ones who seek his face, his people. It's really the sort of straight up flat reading of that. Now, you can rephrase it if you want to go, well, no one. So it's just the seekers of his face, the, people, the, the God of Israel. So anybody who perfectly seeks his face. But that's not exactly how the Hebrew reads. It's drawing it in and saying, no, you, you his people. Yes, like, none of you have truly a pure, 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 hand, or pure heart and clean hands. But the seeker of God, the people of Israel, that's who's allowed to. Now, David... Once again, the context matters here. If David and his people are all going up to the holy place to go set up the thing and standing next to the tabernacle, I don't think, and this is where some of like, the very gospel-centered people, and I love, I love the gospel, but sometimes gospel-centered preaching ends up doing what's, what's called eisegesis as much as other bad preaching can be, which is reading a bunch of things into the text that aren't actually there. And the gospel people would be like, all right, so David's only talking about Jesus at this moment. It's like, no, David's about to go to the tabernacle and set it up and ask who can actually go to this hill while he's going to the hill with all the people. He clearly knows that he and his people can go to the hill of the Lord. And he's saying that, I think, in this text. I think it's initially like, who can possibly do this? This is the God who created everything. Well, there's certain people who can, those who clean hand, pure heart, and all this kind of stuff. And we'll get to, like, what do we do when we don't have those things? But then David coming around going, no, the people, the God, God, Jacob's people, Israel, that's who, God's people. And that's what we move to. It's the beauty of the poem, the doxological opening, moving to a surprising answer to the question of who can actually ascend, and then an even more surprising uh, sort of statement around the people of God, and then the finale, which really matters, the sort of but how because they are led by the king of glory himself. The Israelites are led. I mean, they are bringing this box that requires every six steps a sacrifice because they know this God is holy, this God is set apart, this God has its own thing. And, and so they're bringing this box and they basically say, who is the king of glory? Yahweh, the Lord, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. So as they're coming to the city, lift up your heads. Gates, this, this is the entranceway. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, which is like uh, armies. It's possibly the angel armies or Israel itself. He is the king of glory. That's the imagery. 
as, as a king would be leading his, or a general would be leading this victorious troops into his castle, his home. The strong and mighty one, the one who wins battle, the lord of angel armies, that is who. And this works for the imagery of David. So, I mean, gosh, I listened to a few sermons on this this week, and it's like, well, clearly it's only about Jesus and his church. I'm like, well, no, this still works for the context that David's in. Sometimes we jump ahead a little too quickly. Now, David's walking in with his people, and God in, in his box, and, which is just a representation of God being there, are all following this thing and going, yes, God has returned to his people. We are following God's presence into the city. Lift up your gates. Lift them up, because the Lord of hosts is here. He has won battles, because he dealt with the Philistines, and he's dealt with other things, and they're celebrating this as well. Now we can point forward, Okay. I want to put things in their context before we jump always ahead, because I think too much preaching today just jumps clearly this is about Jesus. But it is still pointing forward, because we aren't the nation of Israel, at least not the geopolitical nation, right? Yes, we should agree with that, yes. <laughs> we are not that. Most of us are citizens of this country, which is the USA. It's not in scripture, no offense to all of you who might read Revelation that way, it's just not there. Um, but it's still pointing forward because something greater has happened. And there was one who walked this earth every day with clean hands and a pure heart in ways that we never could, who lived this sinless, true, he never spoke falsehood. And that one came to save, to deal on the cross with our greatest enemies. So it's not the Philistines, it's not the Canaanites. It's something so much bigger. Sin and death. And then he ushered in this new age of his kingship where he would be king over his people. He still owned everything in the earth, but he would be king over his people and, and ushers them in until one day and will continue to fight until one day all of that's fully defeated. Paul will even pick up on this imagery in the book of Thessalonians. He speaks about Jesus' return, and he uses the metaphor of a, um, a Roman emperor coming back to town and then the people following the Roman emperor back into the city. He uses that as a picture of Jesus' return, those who have allegiance to him. And we are the generation that seeks his face because of the work of Jesus accomplished for us. I think David's acknowledging that. When he gets to, all right, who is this king of glory? Well, he's the one who leads us now. That's how we can come into this place. And so he has cleaned our hands. He's cleaning our hearts. He's not only giving us a new heart, but he's putting a spirit in us to continue that work. That's the picture that we are left with even reading through the New Testament. So this psalm is about Jesus. Yeah, sure. But even still more than that. Because I think sometimes you can read it and sit back and go, well, Jesus is the one who did that. I'm glad Jesus is the one with clean hands and pure heart. That's awesome. But I think the invitation is still there upon us to be the people with clean hands and to pure hearts, to be the people who seek his face, striving to put to death that is sin and unclean and to fight for what is true and what is right. Because in the text, we skip the line, because there's still a blessing that exists for the Pearson who does these things, that he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. 
And this comes from seeking him. Um, I want to focus on that idea to finish. Because at some point in text, there's, there's what theologians sometimes bifurcate a little bit around God's omnipresence and, and God's manifest presence. Because there are times, there's, there's things we can certainly say, and even the psalmist starts this way about God's omnipresent, that God, if, if God is the God outside of all things, but he's also present at all times. There's nowhere that God is not. And we can say those things. The scripture says those things about God, that he is omnipresent. There's, there's nowhere you can flee from his presence. But then there are times that it does seem like God seems to have like a, a focus point in time and history and place. And, and some of us have even experienced that just in our own walks. That there's times where it just feels like God is so eminent or imminent and, and present. T- times that it just feels like he's with us. And like we always know that, but it really feels that way. It really... Um, feels like God is, is in the room or whatever we may phrase it as. Or there's times in history where there's certain movements of the spirit and we can say that God's manifest presence seems to be there. And, and the tabernacle is just one more picture of that. God uniquely is present there, even though he's omnipresent. And one of the ways that I would argue the psalmists speak of his manifest presence is around God's face being turned towards them. God's face, God, God, are seeking His face as well. And it's one way to, to look at this. I mean, um, if, you're, if you're married, that this becomes a, a, an easy analogy, I think. That um, so, uh, I mean, my wife and I do things together. We share a house together. I mean, obviously, we do all these things together. Now, there are times where both of us are working in the house, and. We're working on things to make income for the family. We might be fixing things around the house. Like, there's things that we are still working on, things that are good for our marriage, good for our family, good for everything. But we're working on separate things. We're present together. It doesn't change the presence. But, but it's not intimate or anything like that. But then there's times where we sit down and we have a conversation and we talk about real things and we have dinner together or whatever. And that is face-to-face. That's... There's an intimacy to that. There's a uniqueness. And I think the same is true around this manifest presence. There's a, there's a sort of understanding that God is present at all times, but then there's a unique season. There's a unique seeking. There's a unique face turned towards. Uh, the word seek is the quash in the Hebrew. It's, it's to search for, to pursue, to go after, or even to discover. And it's used, as I said, throughout the Psalms. David will say, earnestly, I bequash you. Earnestly, I seek you. Or one thing I ask, or one thing I bequash, one thing. It's compared to like thirsting for water just to go after. Tozer, um, in one of his books, just has this great quote. He says, to have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified and happy experience by the children of the burning heart. He says, come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. 
Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestations of Christ to his people. We wait to be, he waits to be wanted and too bad that with many of us he waits so long, so very long in vain. There's a question. Does that resonate with your heart or, or with our community? A desire for the, the manifest presence, a desire for, to just seek and be present with the Lord, to actually have encounter after encounter with him. Because I, I tell you what, one of the things that we are heading down towards is really thinking through, right, how, how does the church practice regular seeking of the Lord's face? What does that look like? And, and the church has all sorts of ways in history, I think the New Testament has all sorts of ways, to answer that question, whether it's through fasting, whether it's through praying, whether it's through retreat and solitude, whether it's through community, whether it's just through meditation on the text, and uh, whether it's singing just at the top of your lungs. There's all sorts of ways that, that the church and the people of God have answered this question. And it's different personalities. Different personalities are going to gravitate towards different tools, different ways that God has instructed us to seek his face. But we as disciples, we'll, we have tools in our, our repertoire that God goes, all right, I want you to seek me. If you seek me, you will find me. With all your heart, if you seek me, you will find me. But it's not just the seeking, because what, what ends up happening is we get transformed into the people of love. That's what that comes. So we can come and sing fervently all we want, but if that's not a tremendous emotional experience, but if it doesn't end with being transformed into the people of love, it's, it's foolishness or dedicated to science and solitude, all these tools, but that we would seek his face. And hear me, it's so easy to go through the motions. And there's pieces of that that aren't bad. Routine is not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it, we, we treat it like routine with God is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But if routine's all you have, then that's a problem. Because you can do all the things and still not seek the face of God. Like every week we can sing here every Sunday and not actually seek the face of God. We can karaoke our way through the service. And we can pray and still not seek the face of God. We can practice all the disciplines of the Lord and not actually f- seek the face of him, encounter with him. And there's all sorts of things of compromise, complacency that play a role in that. And David's aware of this. He says, give us clean hands. May our actions, may, may the things we pursue and our internal being be right, God. And there's no way around the fact that in some ways there's a direct link between our level of holiness and our level of experiencing the very presence of God. It just is. And hear me, I'm not talking about earning God's favor. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about experiencing the love of God. I I think, I'm not saying that God's up there grumpy, waiting for us to just behave and he's going to strike us down and we got to act a certain way to make sure he's happy with us. That's not what I'm saying. But there seems to be a correlation of pursuit of holiness and the experiencing of him. And we have to free ourselves of the idols that pull us away. Whatever they are, pleasure or autonomy, no one telling us what to do, or entertainment, or sugar, or alcohol, whatever it may be. So we can be set apart. And what we need right now, um, I think John Tyson talks about, is sustained urgency. Because if all we have is urgency, if all we have is let's go get it, 
kingdom of God. We got to go. We got to go do justice. We got to, uh, there's a decline in our civilization. We got to pray. We got to intercede for our city. We got we to do all those things. And if all we have is urgency, six months, a year, it's going to be a struggle. But if all we have is sustainability, we talk about emotional health, Sabbath, rest, all these wonderful things. If all we have is that, then we can become irrelevant, disconnected, may not make very little difference, it may make very little difference in the city around us. And all those things are a means to the end, to seek the face of God, and he would transform us into a people of love. And in so doing, perhaps play the role of David and the people of, of Israel in this moment. And we would be the people to carry the very presence of God to our city, to be the people who are let in going, Jesus is the king of glory, and we are bringing him to the city with us. But in order to do so, we've got to have, pursue him, seek him, seek to have clean hands, to repent of sin and brokenness in our lives, pure hearts, repent of all the internal struggles, all the ways that um, we just don't live in line with how he designed us to be. So I want to lead us into a bit of a time of, of meditation or reflection before we take communion. And so... As we reflect, I want, I want to reflect on the end first. Who is this king of glory? I want us to pray. I want us to hear these words. As Paul answers this question for us, I want us to, to hear the beauty of this king of glory. That he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So who is this king of glory? He is the head of the church, the body. Who is the king of glory? He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. So he might come to have first place in everything. Who is the king of glory? God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him reconcile everything to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God, you are the king of glory. Jesus, you are that king, the king of kings, who comes into his home, comes into this world that is yours. And ushers in your kingdom. But God, you call us to a clean hand and pure heart, so I want us to imagine to visually just imagine our, our hands just being mired in dirt. We spent a full day gardening, we've been playing in the creek, whatever it is, the, the way our hands can get so covered in dirt and, and our fingernails and just struggle to wash it off. Visualize our soul to somehow our, our inner being, our hearts just covered in 
dirt and grime. She's polluted in every way. And we have that picture of ourselves. And yet we stand before God somehow just completely dirty, but then John will say, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So may we not say that. May we recognize our dirty hands and our dirty hearts and the way we spoke untruths. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from unrighteousness of God. May you take our dirty hands and our unpure hearts and may you give us clean hands, pure hearts. May you do that work and continue to do that work. Taking John farther, I want you to picture in your mind just it being dark. Everything around you being dark. You're in a dark place. You can't see where you're going. You're stumbling. But then there's light. It sort of illuminates just the place that you are on. And it helps guide where you're walking. And it helps guide where to go. And others who may not have the light start to notice the light. And it starts showing things along your path that if it was dark, you'd be stumbling over. But now that you can see, you can avoid. So what might those things be for you? That's the picture of walking in the light, that, that we are able to see the things that we are called to avoid that would trip us up. Anxiety, control, anger, money, and comfort, apathy, and complacency. Because if we want pure hearts and clean hands, it's a walking this out. God, help us to see those things. And not only that, but maybe there's others around you that see that light that you are walking in themselves walking in darkness. God, help us. Who might that be for you? A coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a classmate. God, I pray this week that others would see us living this out. That Jesus, yes, the truest, the purest heart and hands, but yet, God, Make us, consecrate us, set us apart too, that we would walk in the light and shine like stars in the universe. So I pray for those still walking in the darkness, that they may meet the King of glory, because who is like him?